already people talk so much about sustainability in this industry as a consumer and as a brand if you are not following such practices if your brand still resonates with being environmentally destructive i don't think you're going to sustain forget 20 years probably not even 10 years you're going to sustain one of the biggest impact that we feel we can do is making a recycled or a more sustainable product as cheap as the unsustainable one if we can achieve that then there's no reason for any brand or any customer to purchase the unsustainable one before any world changing innovation there was a moment an event a realization that sparked the idea before it happened is a show about that idea I'm Donna Laughlin and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Imagine mountains of unwanted clothing rotting in landfills or washing up on distant shores. Environmentally destructive fabrics that waste millions of gallons of water in production. Sweatshops and forced labor camps. These scenarios may sound like they're out of a movie, but unfortunately, they are everyday realities. And these are just some of the problems our guest Pavan Gupta is trying to fix with his new manufacturing platform, Fashinza. The Conscious Driven app connects independent fashion designers and small manufacturers with the people, technology, and funding they need. Launched just 2 years ago, Fashinza is already working with over 80 brands around the world and more than 100 factories across India, Bangladesh, China, and Vietnam. We talked to Pavan about how he took on the massive problem of disrupting the global fashion supply chain. Pavan loved engineering and tinkering as a child, but his humble ambitions didn't include changing the world. Here we dive into the fateful chain of events that came to shape his future as a platform builder and change maker. I come from a very small town in northern part of India. It's about like four hours from the capital, New Delhi. Very small town, like small from Indian standards. We had a population probably fifty thousand. Grew up in a very small community. My folks were pretty much working class people. My father used to manage a factory. My mother was a teacher. So a pretty humble beginning for me. We were two siblings, and I think like grew up in a town which was pretty much a manufacturing town. All of my friends were either businessmen or their parents used to work in some manufacturing facility or the other. When you were in school, what were your favorite subjects or topics that excited you? It's pretty cliche, but mathematics and science were my favorite topics. and especially in science physics hence i ended up becoming an engineer as well so you went to the indian institute of technology which is a very noted school what was that experience like oh super amazing a lot of what i have achieved today goes back to the institution to delhi the kind of peers that i interacted with there like just talking to the cream of the entire country coming together really super ambitious people and Honestly when I came from a small town I had no idea what my capabilities are my ambitions were also pretty much like not there very humble ambitions as well like all I wanted was a good job a decent paying salary with which I could afford a home and a car never ever I had thought about like let's a starting up but I think like being 
between all those thousands of highly ambitious people who had seen a lot and then just interacting with so much alumni who were present across the world, had achieved so many things. I mean, that is when I started realizing what the potential I had in me. What doors opened to you by going to that university? I think most importantly, like you also said, it's a pretty renowned institution. Like you not being from India still know the name of the college, which essentially means that I wherever we go, we have a credibility attached to ourselves. I still remember I came from my college on a trip to Stanford University for a couple of weeks. And even here, when I would message somebody that, oh, hey, I'm from IT Daily, I'm a sophomore there, just came here to understand the technology ecosystem, would you mind spending 15 minutes with me? And people used to just like, they would be like, okay, great, come by and happy to give you an idea of what's happening here. So I think those kind of doors really opened up. And even though I came from a place where my family had no connections, so it was very difficult for me to even understand and open doors just because of my family background. That's where IIT Delhi's name really helped and opened up so many doors. So what was your first professional job out of school? By my senior year, I had realized that I wanted to start up. I was hell-bent on starting up anything that could come under my radar. I met two of my closest friends from college and we all three got super excited about starting up together, but we had no money. And I just took the highest paying job I could get out of college. And that turned out to be Deutsche Bank. You followed a safe route. So (laughs) they're not going to struggle and needing to be bootstrapped. So what did you learn from your experience with Deutsche Bank that you then took into your entrepreneurship era? Number one, it was investment banking. So it was super hard work. Like we would burn midnight oil. And I think that is something that was that. I got really comfortable with just working super hard, working in a very stressful environment, with people shouting all over, this money flowing so much. Every mistake that you do is a dollar that goes, uh, that's a loss or a profit book to the customer or to you as a bank. So highly stressful environment, highly competitive environment, super hardworking environment. And most importantly, I worked with people. My team was present in Dubai, London, India, US. So just being able to get so much exposure from different kind of people, different cultures and different economies. I think the worldview that I got there, all these training that I got in terms of hardworking and working under pressure. I mean, that's something that is completely invaluable. So in that period of time, you still had like this entrepreneurship kind of going in your head. What it's what what ignited you to say, you know what? I worked with this very large global entity, but now I want to get out there and venture on my own. I mean, was there somebody that kind of that you looked at from the distance that was, you know, your entrepreneurship idol or Carol, or was it coming to Silicon Valley? I mean, what really triggered that interest? I think the trip to Silicon Valley in my sophomore years were really the trigger. That's where, I mean, I could see so many folks who were pretty much my age really talking about changing the world. That's when I thought that I'm no less. I have cracked some of the toughest exams in the college. I mean, if I can't do it, then who else? So that's where I thought about, like, let's broaden my vision. Let's keep my ambition as something that can change the world, really define what I have done. And then, honestly, one more important part in my career was one of my mentors, Rajul. So he was my my then-girlfriend's first cousin, and he had created what are now two unicorns in India. And he also came from the same college, pretty much similar background. And again, like, he was sort of an inspiration that if he could do it, then so can I. So, yeah, these couple of things really helped trigger that. 
dream of really creating something of my own. Who are the two unicorns? Uh, so one is Pine Labs. It's a fintech startup. And the other is Global Logic. So the company that you set out to create was Curify. Correct. Can you describe what exactly Curify, what your vision was and how you got an airborne? I think, to be honest, we did not really understand a lot of nuances around creating a startup at that time. Market sizing, problem statement analysis. I think those were the terms which were alien to us. We just like went out to the market, spoke to a bunch of folks, realized, okay, this could be a great opportunity or this could be a great problem to solve and just started solving that problem. And hence, Curify came out. So in this case, one of our co-founders, parents were both doctors and we ended up just meeting them understanding what their life is like what are the kind of challenges they face healthcare is obviously a big industry but at the same time it's also one of the worst industries in india like it's very hard to get a really good healthcare if you are not from the top strata of the society and that's where we started thinking how can we make doctors lives better their lives are so stressful every doctor is seeing 50 patients a day how do we make their lives easier and hence improve the outcomes of healthcare in the country? So that's how we started thinking about it. And we started creating a community of doctors which could help each other, diagnose cases faster, which could provide their second opinion, sort of like work like a department, but on a digital and app media. So that's what we started creating. And we eventually built a pretty strong community of doctors. So basically a LinkedIn, but for doctors. Correct. In a couple of years, we had created a community of almost 30% of India's doctors who were discussing almost like 1,000 to 2,000 cases every day on the platform, sharing images, case history, getting opinions from specialists. One of the other challenges in India is that to find a heart specialist or a cancer specialist, the patients usually need to travel to larger cities, which is always not possible for them. So what we really pioneered was that they could go to a GP in a small town, which is easily available. And then the GP would, let's say, take an opinion from specialists who are based, let's say, in the larger towns, which really increased the speed of diagnosis. And hence, we were actually able to diagnose multiple things like cancers and heart diseases at the onset itself. So when did you decide to actually leave Curify or pass the baton and go to create your new entrepreneurial opportunity? Did you sell the company or... Are you still involved with the company? What's your status? No. So in 2017, we sold the company to a Seattle-based corporate called Edifex. So they gave us a good deal and we took the exit. We stayed with them for two more years as part of the lock-in and getting a new team in place. And in early 2020, January, I decided to move on and start FashionSir with my co-founders Abhishek and Jamil. Okay. So let's talk about your journey to the fashion industry, which takes you really back to your childhood roots, back to manufacturing. It's funny how things go full circle. I know. <laughs> because I grew up in the back of a publishing and print shop in my father's and uncle's business. And I went off to study journalism only to find myself kind of going back to my roots and not really realizing probably until I was you know close to 30, how much influence that on me. So you're on a trip, a road trip. Just describe what this road trip was. Where were you going? And what was the experience that it kind of ignited you to create your next venture? I think one of the things my father always used to say was, in a manufacturing unit, you could provide employment to hundreds of folks. Like he would come to Curify's office and he would be like, great, you built a great company, but you're only employing 40 people. Where do other hundreds of millions of people who exist in India who don't have any job, how do those people get jobs? Like he worked, he was a, managing a small plant, pretty much an SMB, but they were employing close to 200 people. 
And that's what he used to always tell me. And that's how, like, I mean, post the acquisition, I started thinking about how do we make it a thing? Like, how do we grow the manufacturing base in India so that all these hundreds of millions of people actually come out of the bottom of the pyramid and get a stable job? And I was talking about this problem too with my co-founders, Abhishek and Jamil, both of them who come from a more fashion e-commerce background. They worked in multiple e-commerce companies, primarily in fashion. And we just thought that, okay, let's take a road trip to Jaipur which is one of the manufacturing hubs for fashion in India. Let's see how people work there. We had a few friends who had factories there. We just went to their factories to really see how things work. And I think like that's where we really saw, I mean, a huge economy which was, which was being created there. Hundreds of thousands of women getting employed. And most of these women come from underprivileged backgrounds. In a lot of these cases, they were earning more than their husbands who were probably security guards somewhere. And these people had stable jobs, they had dignity. Effectively, that meant you were not just providing employment to so many people, but at the same time, you were providing employment to women in huge numbers, which was improving the social dynamics, which was making them more independent, and also just getting them into formal workplace. And then we started reading about how Bangladesh transformed by providing employment to millions of women, how it happened in China way back. And that just like, we kept getting sucked into the entire problem statement and the impact that we could create with it. And it just became like our passion. We just started with it. How far is Jaipur from where you grew up? It's about like five hours. That's pretty significant. So when you were on this trip, was this a business trip for just to explore the manufacturing and what was happening? Or were you going there for a holiday? It was more like a holiday, which just turned into a business trip because we knew people who had manufacturing there. Again, the power of the network. So let's talk about the problem. Just last week, I saw it was an article. It ran multiple places, but there was mountains of unwanted clothing uh, washed up in Ghana uh, and on the beach. And apparently the U.S. and, and the United Kingdom are two of the largest exporters of unwanted clothing. So I just cleaned out my closet. And now I feel a little guilty because I don't know where I made donations to some shelters and I made donations to some other nonprofit types. And I'm not sure where my clothes were off do now. And yeah. so when I saw these, this picture, it was really disheartening. And you see name brand and you see garments that still have tags on them. So you can recognize the stores in which they were purchased. And some of them were stores in which I had shopped at. And I really need to realize, okay, we got a problem. So let's Dig in now on what exactly you're doing. What is the network and the power of the network that you've understood from your prior adventures? How are you applying this to the fashion and manufacturing industry? Absolutely. One thing we realized was that the entire past few decades were all about building up volumes, just manufacturing huge quantities of products. You can manufacture them cheap and then showing them down a consumer's throat by giving 70% discounts, 80% discounts. This is something we realize is a very, very bad practice. Now, for example, if I am a brand, if I'm a fashion retailer without naming anyone, I would go and say that, okay, let's manufacture 100,000 pieces of this T-shirt just because it's much cheaper to manufacture 100,000 T-shirts. The manufacturer gives me great deal. I would probably end up selling 40 to 50% of my products at full price the rest of the products would either be sold at a deep discount or they would just be liquidated, which does not benefit anyone, which effectively means that you're reducing your margins because you are 
throwing off clothes or just giving them dis- at discounts. But at the same time, because the factories are large, they want you to give them large quantities. They won't work for anything less than 100,000 pieces for a T-shirt. If you go to and tell them and tell them, okay, I don't want one design. Can you do 10 designs, but only 10,000 pieces per design? The best factories won't take your order at all, or they would give you a very high price. Now, this is one of the reasons we calculated that almost two to three times the number of clothes are actually getting manufactured. Interesting. So your days of working for a global bank really paid off in looking at the margins here. And oh, it's, it's <laughs> So I read, and, and this number could be off, and you might have a better number, but the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency reported 16.9 million tons of used textile waste a year. Yeah, I'm not surprised, to be honest. Is that an accurate number or is it bigger? No, I'm not surprised. I mean, it could be it could be this number. I haven't calculated it specifically, but it does not sound way off. Yeah, 16.9. And then the other component of that, which is really disconcerting, is when it comes to, I've worked a lot in transportation and manufacturing and the democratization of the manufacturing of cars. And so we do know the carbon footprint and the the water challenges and the, you know, all the uh, the, the green gas emissions. I mean, factories where clothes are being made are culprits from, from that, right, over time. And the people who work in the factory are exposed to that. So what are you doing to help lessen or as part of your approach to help reduce, you know, if we're buying, if we're highly con- consuming, highly disposable, we live in a very must gotta have it, you know, sell mode, right? And, and so we're consuming more, we also dispose more because we want cheaper goods. And how do we actually help reduce, you know, the the challenges that are, you know, with land, air and water and and gases? I mean, these are challenges within manufacturing. Correct. And I mean, honestly, we came from outside the fashion industry, so we did not understand all these challenges. But when we went deeper, we realized that there are all kinds of technologies available there, which are better for environment, which waste less water, which are better for the workers as well, their conditions as well. For example, the denims, like you have all these washes on denim, which takes up a lot of water. But now we work with factories which do do waterless treatments for the washes. They're able to do it using laser, which is much better for the environment. The only challenge was that, number one, because these were niche technologies, only niche factories were able to do it. It was expensive. The technology was expensive. And nobody, the no retailer was willing to pay a higher price. What we're really doing here is bringing scale to these technologies by investing money into the scale, by actually marketing those technologies to a large base of audience, providing scale to these factories so that we can drive down the cost and at the same time providing smaller quantities productions to the retailers so that they can also absorb some cost on their own. So effectively, pretty much how Tesla did to the batteries, by providing them scale, they actually reduce the cost for the batteries down. The technology is now coming up. And this is the similar thing that we are doing here. One of the chief benefits of the Fashinza platform is making sustainability more accessible. Here in this segment, Pavan explains how small manufacturers can adopt an industry protocol called BCI, which stands for the Better Cotton Initiative. This nonprofit multi-stakeholder governance group promotes better standards in cotton farming. A large portion of the cotton that we use now in our supply chain is BCI certified, 
Now we're moving even further ahead to actually being proper organic cotton or even recycled cotton. So I think the scale benefit that we have because we work with over 100 customers is how we are trying to transform the supply chain and making these technologies much cheaper and more accessible. Cotton is the fabric of our life, right? And cotton is is more sustainable and can decompose. But there are other things in manufacturing that I, I when I started digging in on this topic that I wasn't even aware of, like the, the chemical treatments, right, that are used. Right. And and so PFA being one of the biggest that a lot of major manufacturers are eliminating, you know, from their uh, chemical processing of things, because that eventually it seeps into the water, into the landfill and, and into humans, right? And the other thing that was really shocking to me was it takes cotton it decomposes quickly but it could take up to 80 years for a pair of rubber boots to decompose oh yeah absolutely and then and then i looked a little deeper and i was like well we live in this really disposable society and in, in the world <laughs> but athleisure and athletic wear which are a huge demand and that includes spandex which apparently right. is not decomposable at all it's indefinite yeah like what do you how do you take somebody, an entrepreneur that comes in and says, I have a new line of clothes. I want to be more conscious. I want to be more sustainable. And I want to, you know, think like Stella McCartney in a sense. And I want to just from, you know, be sustainable from the beginning, you know, the whole cycle of things. How would you counsel and ensure that I'm not using spandex in my clothes? Yeah, it's tough to be honest because the customers want it. You provide our customers without spandex clothes, they would probably go to a different retailer, different brand. Personally, honestly, I use cotton in my active wear. I use cotton t-shirts to go to gym, cotton trousers for my gym wear. But people want spandex now. I mean, Lululemon, for example, is a pretty famous brand. Everybody loves that. It uses spandex. I mean, not everybody is going to solve all the problems. And a lot of it also comes down to what the customers want. This is the brutal truth of it. Not everything can be solved by just using sustainable materials. A lot of it also has to come back to recycling, just thrifting. Thrifting, for example, is something I'm super excited about. I saw that Levi's in the last, uh, and actually it was 2011, so it's been a bit, has been working on their wasteless jeans, which are 100% recyclable, upcycled, made of garbage, basically, jeans. Yeah. And they're quite expensive. You know, they're in the 60 to like 150 range. And I've seen them at some high-end store. And I think that type of consciousness coming from a very global established brand is an interesting way to have that conversation. I don't know if college students can afford those, but I, I certainly couldn't when, when I was a college student. But I remember getting my Levi 501s and they were stiff and I would soak them in water to soften them and I'd wear them all year. And by the end of the year, they'd finally be like soft enough and comfortable enough to wear. <laughs> but I think having big brands like Levi's you know, helps champion the change. How are you working with your manufacturers to help champion change and influence? Maybe not necessarily the publicly traded companies, but even the up and coming companies in manufacturing. No, absolutely. And I think, like I said a bit earlier, one of the biggest value adds, one of the biggest impact that we feel we can do is making a recycled or a more sustainable product as cheap as the unsustainable one. If we can achieve that, then there's no reason for any brand or any customer to purchase the unsustainable one. Like you said, Levi's wristlet jeans are pretty expensive. What if we can actually make those jeans as cheap as the other ones? 
that's what we want to achieve. For example, today we can say that BCI cotton for us is almost pretty much similar to the unsustainable cotton, which uses up a lot of water. We feel that with organic cotton, we will be able to achieve the same figure in a couple of years where we can go and confidently say that the cost of organic cotton that we can provide is absolutely similar to non-organic cotton. And similarly, we are very close to making recycled polyester for the active wear as cheap as the normal polyester products. And the recycled polyester generally comes from the pet bottles, water bottles, etc. I think this is the this is one of the most impactful things we believe we are trying to solve with. We're working with our manufacturers and educating them how they can actually transition to such materials, such practices to not just get a premium out there in the market, but also create a brand for themselves, which effectively means that the customers, the, the retailers are now tied to you. That's what we're trying to educate them with. We're also set up a team internally, a proper quality team whose major objective is actually to go and audit some of these functions in the factory and really educate them how they can, let's say, use less water, maybe use better technology, reduce the wastage in the production process, and effectively provide a much sustainable solution to the customer. And we help them market that. But at the same time, also improve their bottom lines as well, because the waste or these using of so much water is not cheap. That's expensive. Hey there, it's Donna. I want to invite you to go check out some of our past conversations with game changers and innovators who are shaping our future. Like our guest, Mark Chung, who, like Pavan, is establishing a new platform to reduce our carbon footprint helping commercial and industrial buildings cut down their energy usage and costs. Around $200 billion worth of energy is wasted every year in the U.S. alone. Take a listen. Around the time that my son was born, I started to think, what is the impact I'm going to have on this planet? And if I'm going to be a role model, the way that my parents were a role model for me or my dad was a role model for me to my kids, I couldn't be just a bystander watching climate change erode when I have the ability to develop technology that could change that trajectory. And so I think that, you know, conspired to make me take the plunge. I learned something, actually a lot of somethings, every time I talk to a new guest. They're pioneers. They're thought leaders in their fields. They all have inspiring stories to tell, and I share them with you every week. So if you're enjoying these episodes, please hit subscribe and join me for more stories about the moments before it happened. Let's talk about the women that you said that predominantly in manufacturing are women. I think I read someplace on, I don't know if it was your LinkedIn site or your blog, but your blog, by the way, is very educational. But you talk about 90% of the apparel manufacturing are women. Is that true? Yeah, maybe 90, maybe 80. There's no official figures there. But effectively, when we go to our factories, most of the workers there are women. So new opportunities for women in terms of being on the floor and and manufacturing, as well as being entrepreneurial and bringing products to market. Can you break that down a little bit more? Sure. Women in workforce is still only like less than 25% of the overall workforce in India. If I talk about everything from organized to unorganized workforce. And this is a very significant challenge for the country. It comes from multiple issues, maybe the the historical society, the past couple of hundred years, just the working conditions for women, transport, everything, like multiple factors have combined to achieve this dismal number. And 
manufacturing, especially fashion manufacturing, is where we feel that women have always had a stronghold. The factories have always preferred to have women in workforce. It's just that we need to improve the conditions. We need to provide them more work, better work, and actually provide them a safe working conditions to actually attract more and more women into the workforce there. And a lot of these women actually end up either opening up their own boutiques or opening up their own small factory, if you can call it, maybe employing 10 more women to do small subcontracted work for large factories. So creates a lot of entrepreneurship as well. In fact, not just workers, we realize that almost half of our factories are actually owned or co-owned by, by women. So they may be women in the families who have certain other businesses and the women decided to open up their own factory, something that they like. So it really inspires other women in the society to take up jobs and to take up in entrepreneurship. And I think like for a country like India, with the overall participation is so less, this is actually one of the pioneering industries. How do you think that you and what you're doing is changing not just the manufacturing, but the communities in which the manufacturers are operating from? Is there a better future for women as a result? Yeah, absolutely. I think like number one thing is beyond just employment, they're actually earning members of the family now. They're actually providing a vital source of income to the family, which is already an underprivileged family. And they get a lot of respect in the family now. I mean, this is a, for a developing country like India, which is still coming out and into the world. Most of the population is probably not even traveled outside their own state. This is a very welcome change. And it gives the women more freedom. They go out of the homes. They see what other women are doing. Just imagine one woman worker inside the entire factory goes and sets up her own boutique. It inspires hundreds of women around her who also dream to actually grow and make something out of their own lives or their professional lives. I think this is a real change that comes out of it. And it's very hard to quantify, but we have seen the kind of change. One of our factories is based out of a very a civil, sort of like more like a tribal town. So... There have been disturbances with the government. So many families have fled the area. But that factory is providing employment to almost a thousand women there who now are earning more than the men. And then the men are now coming to the factory owners and saying that we also need jobs. We also want to actually go not indulge in these kind of activities, but actually we want to work. So the kind of chain that one factory is having in that area is just huge. Just imagine like 100 factories getting set up in those areas. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure when you started out, you didn't realize the social and economic impact that you were also going to make within those communities. How many different countries and manufacturers are you currently working with? Our major manufacturing is based out of India and Bangladesh, with some more manufacturing in Turkey. We work with close to 150 manufacturers. How are you pulling together people? Are you using like smart IoT or deep learning to connect people? Yep. So we are actually creating smart factories. So all of the, especially these small and medium factories, they don't have money to digitize their functions, which is where we have built a very small handheld mobile app, which anybody can download on their own mobile phones, including a worker. And they can start essentially digitizing the factories using that smartphone, its camera. And then we use image processing on the background, computer vision on the background, a lot of machine learning, et cetera, to really digitize the functioning of the factories and get the right insights in terms of data. So what it does is that it improves the efficiency of the factories. It makes them as efficient as the la very large factories out there, makes them more reliable, and hence positions themselves to be able to work with best brands and retailers across the world. 
And what is the RRI, return on investment? Is is that quantifiable? Can they measure it? So one important thing with our partner factories, we don't ask them to invest anything at all. So we provide them all these devices. We install the software there. We install all these IoT devices. So the entire upfront investment is borne by us. But what we have realized is that by increasing their efficiency, we actually are able to return an investment within less than six months. And is this a, what is the pricing model for the for this type of service? Is it based on percentage of goods? How do you price it? Uh, so how we do it is that it's a proper, it's a marketplace approach. So all of these factories, they come on our platform. We help them get demand from brands across the world. We help them increase their efficiencies, help them manage the logistics and the supply chain, the financing as well. So we make money for all, everything, generating demand, arranging finances, helping them with logistics. So sort of like we make some commission everywhere. Amazing. So I dug up another stat. Because <laughs> I like numbers. <laughs> and you're for a finance guy. You love stats, yeah. This is another U.S. number, but this is from 2017. And Ellen MacArthur Foundation said that U.S. alone loses $500 billion it's lost in the lack of reuse and recycling each year within the fashion industry. So I just think numbers are just astounding to me that what we think when we go buy, let's use a t-shirt. We go to the store, we innocently buy a basic t-shirt. We should be looking at where it's made, what it's made of, whether or not it is recyclable, what the materials are. But that's kind of the basics. But as consumers... What can we do to demand change or influence change? Do we write to our politicians? Do we raise our voice at discussions and forums like World Economic Forum? What can the rest of us do to champion change alongside you? That's a very good question. And I've thought a lot about it. I don't know if I have the exact right answer. But one thing I have seen working with my customers, which are fashion brands, is consumer speaks with their wallet. Let's say, for example, I personally, as a consumer, the change that I have done is I don't buy plastic products or polyester bit products. I consciously try to buy cotton-based products. The cotton might be unsustainable, but at least still it's much better than polyester. And I think this is the best way for a consumer to force change in the industry. For example, activewear. When consumers started buying activewear, everybody wanted to launch activewear, whether they had the capability or not. If consumers tomorrow start buying cotton-based activewear, the companies would have no choice but to actually offer those cotton-based activewear products. One thing, for example, especially in the U.S., people have become very careful about where the raw material is coming from, are the factories which are being used for production really have safe working conditions or not. This has actually forced a lot of change in the back end where the brands and retailers now care a lot about which are the factories really manufacturing the product, whether their factories are safe, whether they're subcontracting it to factories which are sweatshops. There's so much control now being built around it because the consumers care about it. And I think I've seen that it's a it's a brand in the, it's a brand industry at the end of the day. Like the consumers want to associate themselves with a brand. And if the brand does not stand for what the consumers want to stand for, they would lose out in the in, not even in long run, even in the medium term. The biggest thing that the consumers should do is ask for more information. They should go back email Zara where the product was manufactured. That would actually force Zara to really bring more transparency into the supply chain. Now, whether where the raw materials are coming from, where the cotton has come from, is the cotton come from the Xinjiang region of China where you have accusations of labor camps? 
if that is the case, then Sara would have no choice but to actually move their sourcing away from those from those places. I think this is something that every consumer should ask for, and they should boycott the brands which fail to provide such information. Let's talk about you know twenty years from now. Like, where do you want to see? the industry what what's your message to manufacturers and designers that maybe aren't on board yet with these best practices yeah i think 20 years already people talk so much about sustainability in this industry as a consumer like you care about whether clothes are washing up in ghana or not i think 20 years like a large part of the world is going to talk about this and as a brand, if you're not following such practices, if your brand still resonates with being environmentally destructive, I don't think you're going to sustain. Forget 20 years, probably not even 10 years you're going to sustain. Number one is that. And I think second part is consumer wants more personalization now. As a consumer, we are now identifying not just as small, medium, large. We are identifying themselves as like, I'm Pawan, you're Donna, like... We two are separate individuals. We can't have the same sizes in the stores. We can have same designs in the store. Your personality is different. My personality is different. They want a lot more personalization. And hence, I believe that a lot of manufacturing is going to become more on-demand rather than just manufacturing products meaninglessly in bulk. That in turn would further reduce the waste in the ecosystem and at the same time provide better choices to the customers, which will be ever longer lasting rather than just like being a disposable product. I think these are some of the changes that will definitely happen in the next 20 years, whether you like it or not. Is there anything, any other message, the message you would have for dear future, you know, in, in terms of a, a, you know, somebody who could be, you know, have children, how do we talk about to our kids about this so that they're, maybe they will screw it up less than we did? <laughs> right, you're right. And I think my message to Gen Z, all my cousins who are much younger to me in the next generation, I speak to them a lot about it. What I feel is that these people are much more aware than we were when we were growing up. They have internet, they are connected, and they're a lot more conscious as well. I mean, at least the folks that I've spoken to get taught a lot about environment, more about climate change, and they really care about these things. They want their world to be more conscious like all of my nieces and nephews, they care about whether we are disposing of the right waste in the right bin or not. They care about these things. And I think I really have placed a lot of my hope on these on this generation to really go and ask for change, to ask for more information, to ask corporates to be more careful, to be more conscious of their choices. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's not just the consumer. It's also the corporates that need to make the right choices. They also need to be more cautious. And I think this generation, Gen Z, is definitely asking for it. And they care about it. Like, and I think hopefully we will have much better situation in the 10 years, at least the pace at which the change is ongoing, at which we can see, I think it's going to be a better future for sure in 10 years from now. We're also focusing a lot more on making fashion more inclusive. I think there's a trend around it, but we're just trying to power the trend, make it more affordable, make it less niche, but actually as cheap. I mean, one of the issues that you would probably have seen is plus size clothing is generally much more expensive than normal size clothing. And these are some of the things that we care about and we are trying to 
improve the conditions there in trying to make fashion more inclusive across all genders, across all types of people, races, regions, everywhere. I think like this is the other thing that we are really trying hard for hard to make it happen. So I have a total wild car question for you. What is the oldest article of clothing that you have and why is it so important to you? I think the oldest one that I have is probably 17 years old. It's a sweater that was made by my my mom. She knitted it at home, so I still have it. I don't I don't really fit into that anymore, but it's just like it's close to my heart. In fact, like I wore it, then my sister wore it, and we just want to keep it. Here at Before It Happened, we are also big fans of thrifting, upcycling, and fashion of all types and stripes. The good news is the future is trending toward better communication, more transparency, and a collective sense of stewardship of the earth. Pavan Gupta and Fashinza are in the right place at the right time. So the next time you're about to purchase that new pair of jeans or t-shirt, think about the entire life cycle of that garment and whether or not it's going to be upcycled or end up in a landfill. Thank you for listening. Follow Before It Happened on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Susanna Camp with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. <laughs>